0: You are listening to Single Serves. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. For our inaugural season, We have some great guests lined up and you can expect to hear about such topics like social media for architects, organizational culture, criticism in media, and architects not practicing architecture, among many others. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio and follow us on social media under the handle at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. So today we have the pleasure to count Beck Johnson from Hayworth uh, with us to talk about innovation and creativity in the workplace. Beck is a senior research specialist in in the global workplace research at Hayworth. Thanks, Beck, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the basic question about creativity, and can you tell us a little bit what it is in your mind?
1: Creativity can mean a lot of different things to different people. Um, but being uh, a former academic I tend to lean towards scholarly sorts of definitions and most scholars that study creativity uh, agree to define it in really very broad terms as simply the process of coming up with an idea that is both new or novel and useful or somehow brings value to other people
0: and so why do you think it is important in our lives or personal both personal and professional
1: why it's so important is that some people say that it's u- uniquely a human quality and in, in that regard it it's it's how progress occurs, it's how a society moves forward and, and how we solve problems. It's also been seen as a life giving activity. We as human beings seek it. it. It provides satisfaction for us, brings us it brings us happiness and there's you know, there's this sort of creative cycle or process that has been discussed and kind of replicated for, for many decades and, and it usually involves like four steps. And and when we look at those processes, they're really actually very similar to processes involved in learning. And and we're just kind of wired for that. And and so it's something that we're compelled to do. We're compelled to explore and discover things.
0: It's been observed by me and many other people, and and I'm not sure if there's a scientific basis behind it, but it's commonly understood that children are inherently creative while uh, Adults aren't as creative. Why would that be?
1: I think that is kind of people observe that there is some research that supports this notion. And actually, one of the researchers that I follow, uh, Scott Barry Kaufman, actually has done quite a bit of work in this. But if you think about it, what, what I mentioned earlier in terms of the processes involved in creativity are very similar to learning and exploring and discovering That's. The primary activity that that children partake in, I mean, since birth, right, is that they're constantly bringing in information from outside of them and trying to make sense of those sorts of things. And the younger we are, the less boundaries we have. So there's a lot of trial and error that children move through, you know, in terms of figuring out how the world works. They're they're kind of locked into this sort of cycle of taking new information and and finding how it fits with what they already know. And then testing it. And as adults, the more information and the knowledge we accumulate, along with that, we've learned plenty of boundaries. And we have a tendency to be fairly cognitively lazy, I guess, and our, our brains like to be efficient um, and stick with what we already know. So the the you know, the more you know, the more boundaries you have, the more you have a tendency to kind of stay within those boundaries. And as adults, we've also learned that in some instances, curiosity, you know, which is primary driver for learning and creativity, can have a price to pay. There are plenty of folks that lament the heavy push that um, has happened for standardized testing in in schools and education. And and teachers seem to be ending up teaching children how to perform well on a test rather than fostering their own natural curiosity and desire to explore and discover and learn. You know, and and I'm not saying that standardization is awful. Standardization and efficiency certainly are helpful for some things in life, but they can compete with that sort of natural desire to discover. And what some people might identify as Odd or or inefficient ways in which we get to those light bulb moments. it it can it can prevent people from from that sort of exploration, the older we get. You know as as a former college educator, you can you can see the sort of natural curiosity and those those light bulb moments that happen for people. You know, and that's that light bulb moment is it's it's fundamental to to creativity and, and learning. and and literally you you can see it um, on their faces when that happened. And it often seems like those sorts of things kind of they they happen at, at unexpected times, or from coming at something from an unusual perspective. Um, one of my one of my favorite memories from teaching was when I was asking my students to devise a peer evaluation process for uh, a shared grade on a group project. And they were going to you know have some ownership in how they were going to be assessed, and one student it seemed like out of the blue suggested you know we'll let's put two chickens in a box and let them fight it out and and as expected you know she got some odd looks from her peers and i thought okay let's see where this goes and and then not shortly after that another student said wait you know what, we could put like all the group members into pairs um, for the different qualities that, that are part of the evaluation and then be forced to pick one out of each pair. And I thought, there we go. You know, we got a new peer evaluation system and it came from an idea of putting a pair of chickens in a box. And, you know, frankly, she, the student was was one of my favorite ones of all time. Um, but it's, those kinds of things are risky to say things that are a little uh, uncharacteristic or unexpected, but... that's that's kind of what's needed for creativity
0: would it be fair to say that the way we socialize and learn to live in society as adults is inherently anti-creativity for lack of a better term or is it that when we become adults we learn to balance creativity with other things and it just so happens that sometimes it goes a little too far the other way
1: you know, I think it's it's probably a combination of, of both of those things, but more so the the second option. I think that we still have this natural desire to be curious and it's almost as if that it's, we don't have a lot of opportunity to do that a part, you know, part of this this creative cycle is you, you have to prepare, right? You have to bring information in and, and then there's this phase or stage where you have to let that information kind of incubate, right? You have to, you have to give it some time to get integrated with the things that you already know. And a lot of that sort of cognitive processes happens when we're, um, we're relaxed uh, we're when we're restoring our, or recharging our batteries or if we're doing some sort of routine or, or, activity that, that is kind of on autopilot you know and we you know our, our lives are really busy and yeah we need to coordinate and cooperate with each other and so a lot of it is about needing to kind of sit in and then being so busy that we don't have time to kind of let this, that percolation happen it's, it's really it's essential that that happens in order to get that insight moment and a lot of that You know, we're pressured for time during our day. I I oftentimes will ask, you know, clients that come in to to visit us at Hayworth, where do you get your very best ideas? And uh, I'll wait a few moments. And sure enough, one of the first answers is always in the shower. I'm thinking, well, super, you know, I'm, I personally don't shower at work, but you know, there's my brain doing some good things for work while I'm relaxed and kind of going through my morning routine. And it's, it's kind of like, we need more space. We need more time for that kind of stuff to happen. So that's that so kind of get at your question?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a very interesting uh, answer. And actually, the shower anecdote, I've heard this for many, many years. Uh, and I've even he- heard people say that it's because the water going down the drain actually connects you to the earth. I don't know how how valid that um, theory is. but uh...
1: You know, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a connection because it's you know, the the notion of nature is is really um, restorative for us. Um, there's something that we find very pleasing about that, and that you know, this incubation period typically happens when you are in a not a too intense sort of a mood, but it's almost always some sort of a positive mood. So, yep, that, I I wouldn't be surprised if there were
0: connections there. And maybe that's another area of some more research to be done. So now that we've kind of established what creativity is, I want to talk a little bit about innovation. And uh, can you tell us what it is in your mind?
1: Sure. So in its most simplest terms, I think people or scholars, people that study innovation, they generally agree that innovation is more about the process of bringing new ideas or new services or products into a market or society, right? And it's, it's all it's, it tends to be more about like the mechanisms and the resources to bring those particular new ideas to fruition and, and then kind of disseminate them into a broader group. So it's it kind of creativity and innovation. I think sometimes can people use those terms synonymously, but really they're, they're two separate processes, but they have to actually work together. You know, you've got to, you've got to have ideas to move through that sort of innovation pipeline, right. You know, to kind of trigger those mechanisms and then spread it throughout, throughout the group. So that's when we think about it in terms of studying it, you know, creativity is, is how we come up with those ideas and then innovation is how do we, how do we you know, bring them to full fruition and, and then disseminate them?
0: So what, um, what form would innovation typically take?
1: You know, people have a tendency to identify and remember, like, the big ones, right? The big, the big things that were innovative.
0: So uh, things like the printing press,
1: right? That was, that was, that was a huge concept and idea. Steam powered engines, so, yeah, electricity, telephone, vaccines, you know, you, you kind of get the drift. But what most people don't typically think of are all of the really sort of small and nuanced innovations that occur every day. I mean, all over the place. You know within organizations, you can see it from like streamlining a process or even like at home if you' if you're changing something in a recipe for something that you're cooking. you know all of these things would qualify as innovation because really it's about you know coming up with that sort of new combination of things and then trying it out and and then, and then um, sharing it. You know, we're really kind of awash with it all the time, um, but we, we have a tendency to notice those those big things.
0: So that's a very interesting point because now that you frame it that way, it makes me think that everyone innovates. Pretty much all the time, even at a, at a minuscule level. It, it begs the question because when it comes to business, we will often hear about innovative firms versus those that don't innovate. But if, from what you've just described and, and what I've experienced in my own professional life, every firm would innovate at some level, but maybe some faster than others. Is that a fair description?
1: Yeah, you know, I do. I think that is a really fair description. And what sorts of things are in place that are slowing it down? And what sorts of things that are in place that can that can not impede innovation? You know, I mean, it, 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 if we go back to what I said about you know why is creativity important, and this would kind of apply here, is that we're kind of driven for it. You know we're inherently curious. And so we're we're, constantly moving forward to some degree. Um, But I I do think you're right. I think that even at an individual level as well as an organizational level, you're going to have some folks that um, will innovate in smaller increments or a little bit slower. And then you will have some folks in some organizations that really will seem to take quite large leaps. So when you're talking about businesses, it's like, what are those things that allow them to take those larger leaps?
0: So is there a recognizable threshold? If we talk about innovation based on the assumption that everybody innovates at some level. Some innovations are just too minute to be noticeable or significant enough to be recognized. Is there a recognizable threshold, and even more than recognizable, measurable, at which point innovation kind of helps organizations and individuals grow exponentially?
1: Uh, You know, I think the key factor is, in terms of innovation is whether or not it gets adopted. Or, or whether or not, you know, that it gets adopted quickly enough. And so it really depends on that second part or that, that, that second. Um, half of the definition of creativity, you know, is about a new, and and it's, it's an idea that is both new, right? It has to be something that's never been done before, but then it also needs to be useful, right? So you can have something that's never been done before, but if people don't have a use for it or if they don't see a value in it, that's going to impact whether or not it gets adopted into the broader group. You know, there's, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's this, there's a museum of, um, failure and it's, they actually chronicle, you know, products that, they were new, but they just never quite got adopted, and, and it could be for a variety of different reasons. So that, I think, is is kind of where the threshold is. People would understand that. It's like, well, we've got this great new idea or this great new product, but nobody uses it. Well, then it's not, it's not fully an innovation. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does, uh, and it, it also brings up the fact that I've heard before, and I, I wouldn't be able to point out the source, it's just something I've heard several times, that innovation that's too forward thinking or too new or too uh, innovative it's a lot harder for people to accept and adopt and sometimes great ideas just fall by the wayside because they're just too too far out there
1: yeah i think that that really is a huge piece of it there's you know there's this theory that was developed by everett rogers like in the 1960s and it's, and it's been a fantastic model that explains this whole process. And it's, it's literally called the diffusion of innovation. You have to catch the right timing, essentially. You know, so you, at the front end of, that, of the curve are, are your actual innovators, the people that are coming up with those new ideas. And then what follows those folks are what we would consider early adopters, right? And so it, it needs to gain momentum past those early adopters to get pulled through the majority of a group or society. And sometimes the, the, the rest of us aren't quite ready for it you know and so what that can mean is okay maybe maybe it's not a, um, a failure of the idea itself right maybe it's it's just the timing is off and and you need to hold off a little bit or you need to reiterate a little bit more to fit into the needs and the usefulness of that that larger majority
0: and it, it's interesting you you mentioned the law of diffu- diffusion of innovation because it's something that i've heard about many times and there's um, a guest on my other podcast uh, terry o'reilly um host of uh, Under the Influence, who's a very experienced marketer, and, and he's got his own podcast on marketing, and he was some of his episodes, he was talking about how certain ideas that were great on paper, for example, TiVo in the late 90s or early 2000s, which could have made people's life a lot easier, and it did to an extent, but it was a commercial failure because what they did is they failed to cater to the early adopters, and they went straight to the mass market. And you see the opposite with Apple, for example, and in particular the iPhone, is that the iPhone, when it came out, it was a $500 phone. Nobody had ever seen that before. And they were catering to early adopters. And now we know how much of a success the iPhone has been as it literally transformed an entire industry. So there's there's, there's definitely a marketing aspect to it as well. Marketing or being able to convince people that that idea will serve them well. So it's, it's, it's interesting because it kind of brings the more scientific... Or creative side of innovation, with a more uh, pedestrian but very equally important marketing aspect of it.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think one of the other things that that can happen that that I described was it's uh, people will recognize it as the, the Gartner's technological hype cycle, and it's this kind of captures the notion of that needing to reiterate once once you're in that um, in that early adopter phase. You know, if it doesn't quite doesn't quite get catch on with with the majority, is that typically when something new comes out. There's, there's this hype, people get really excited about it. And they think, oh, this is really super fabulous. And then, then after they, you know, kind of use it a little bit, they realize that it's not perfect, right? And then there's this like trough of disillusionment. Oh, this is awful. It's not meeting my needs, blah, 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 right? And then eventually what happens is that through continued use or tinkering, you kind of get to this, this place where, okay, so now it's being adopted and its true uses and true usefulness is being realized. And, and so sometimes you'll see that sort of a cycle happen with innovation as well.
0: So in, in the, the world of business, why would you say innovation is important?
1: It's kind of simple. If you're not progressing, like if you're not moving forward, you're going to get passed by somebody else
0: that can
1: do what you do, but do it better, right? You know, however, with that said, I think progress or, or innovation for the sake of itself can be empty or hazardous. You know, at the end of the day, you still you have to make the connection with how does it actually serve us. You know are you meeting a need for yourself or someone else, and that this, this is where it can get you know, to that tricky part. And you see organizations fading away because they, they weren't able to innovate. And it might not be necessarily about speed, but perhaps, you know, the cultural organization or, or or you know, the boundaries around it were a little too rigid. And, you know, you had naysayers, people saying, oh, you know, poo-pooing idea, idea. And you see, like, organizations that, you know, were quite prominent have basically died. You know, like, you know, the, the typical example is like Kodak. You know, they they didn't embrace the digital technology of photography. So uh, they're gone. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and Kodak was, um, I think in the first half of the 20th century, one of the most innovative and possibly powerful companies in the world, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, organizations have a tendency to kind of, and they need to move through this, they have a tendency to kind of move through Uh, innovation in terms of, at first, they tend to be much more creative, right? You know, a lot of ideation. And then then they'll start to take those ideas and and try to, like, them through the market, you know, relatively quickly, right? So because they want to be able to compete. um, And, you know, at a certain point, you know, we talked about the diffusion of innovation, you have to socialize it, right? And then once once you socialize it, that's when, like, some of the processes that, you know, come about to sustain that new idea will kind of, they they tend to be much more sort of controlling, and so organizations, if they get stuck in that phase, in that sort of controlling phase, they'll they kind of limit themselves, right? That that it becomes innovation and and production of that idea becomes limited by the controls that are in place, you know, for producing it, right? So I'm thinking like in terms of manufacturing kind of um, terms, you know, if if you're going to produce a product you, that you want it to have consistent quality, right? So that takes you know some some pretty you know, lean and, and linear processes, and some, when that mentality kind of takes over, then it can squash that very first part of it, which is that creative, creative part, right? So that's that's where organizations need to go. You know what? We're we're getting a little too a little, little too heavy in this, so we're gonna maybe break some rules that need to be broken, so that we can come up with some new ideas.
0: So so now that we've defined creativity and innovation, I want to address something that I I seem to see a lot, which is innovation being perceived as. Something that happens in the material world, but based on the conversation we've been having for the last twenty minutes or so, it seems like innovation can be just as much as about processes or or ways of thinking, and not necessarily manifest itself in through material objects. How can those people create um, environments that or that foster creativity and, by extension, innovation?
1: Oh gosh, you know, there's some there's some great work out there by by scholars and in, in how to do this and. You know there are some certain things that that need to be in place. One of them is that you need to have folks that kind of approach and and can manage uncertainty in in kind of a positive way, you know, so that that they when they see that things are uncertain, they see that as a signal that there's that there's there's fruitfulness in in pursuing that because it it kind of um, allows for different ideas and perspectives to collide. So, you know, being open to to uncertainty is a good thing. I think another thing, especially when you're dealing with, you know, people and, and getting them to, to try and think creatively is a big part of that process that we talked about is is this notion of, you know, you've got to, there's trial and error. You've got you've got to be able to fail and look at failure as, again, as a positive thing as opposed to, oh no, we failed. If if people are in an environment where failure is is a negative thing, they're not going to share their ideas, right? So um, they're, they're going to want to protect themselves a little bit. So and you've got to have a certain level of openness in, in the workplace amongst people. You have to have trust. It, uh, Amy uh, Edmondson calls it psychological safety, right? So we have to feel like we can share without too much negative consequences. And then we also have to kind of honor this this sort of creative cycle of needing to work intensely and think intensely and then to kind of rest and relax for that incubation cycle. So, you know, if we think about policies in in the workplace, Or how people treat each other in the workplace you know one of the things that that i often will will tell clients is that you know if you see somebody daydreaming like staring off into space at work that's that's actually a good thing you know they're they're working on something they're they're incubating on something and if you interrupt that or shut it down you know like hey get back to work you're actually shortchanging that process and they're they're going to be less likely to um come up with new ideas right because they have to kind of stay in the lane if that makes sense so, in terms of the way in which we interact with each other, those would be some things to think about. And in terms of our our um, external environment, the physical environment that we work in, you know needing to do deep thinking can requires a little bit of insulation from things, right? So, is there a place where I can kind of shut off and 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 go and, and concentrate on some things that I'm trying to understand, as well as having opportunities to to relax and allow that sort of maybe like that connection to nature, right, or to be open to a variety of different kind of stimuli to to kind of, you know, spur or or bring in something interesting from the outside that will cause that light bulb moment to happen. So it's really it's really about having a variety of different kinds of environments that you can tap into when you need to. And that's tricky. So it's it, it's it is it's quite tricky and complex.
0: And it sounds like uh, it has as much to do with organizational culture where a company with a very clear and established culture could very well help foster creativity and innovation and another one no clear culture what i would call by default culture would just kind of shut it down so that's very interesting and then it also brings me to the fact that now in the workplace design we see a lot more environments that are varied and designed to create kind of fleeting moments of randomness and random interactions is that where uh that trend comes from is to try and create more innovative environments and that's what we see in a lot of the latest and greatest uh, workplace environments?
1: Right. I think I think there's there's some of that to that from From my understanding, I mean, it's the office environment. It first it started with private offices, right? and then it then it became cubicles, right. Um and those are those are fantastic for sort of those deep thinking individual moments. But what people were missing out on were those those opportunities, those serendipitous sort of interactions with colleagues that that would happen that you know you get two people together that are just chatting about something and they go, hey, there's a good idea in there, you know? And so, you know, that was a part of the push to more open office plans. They wanted people to collaborate, right? But it, in, in a way it seems like that has swung a little too far and, and there's this notion of collaboration overload happening, right? So we want you to collaborate so you can innovate and, you know, we want to break down the silos in the organization so that you can, you know, cut across different, you know, disciplines and and, you know, domains of knowledge and all that kind of good stuff and that's fantastic. But if that's the environment you're in all the time, where do you have your recharge? Where do you have your individual thinking? How do you prepare for working with your colleagues? So it's, you know, the the pendulum is starting to swing back towards that middle ground, right? So yeah, I do do think that, that there's, that's a part of it, that, that people are realizing that, you know, there's a variety of different needs that we, that we have to address in order for people to, you know, come up with ideas on their own, but, but also as, as they're sharing with their colleagues, right? And, and there's richness in that. And I think we're starting to learn the value of work looking like a variety of different things and activities, as opposed to, you know, the sort of simple work is staring at a computer screen and typing away at a keyboard all day. So, yeah, I, yeah, I think that there are some influences there.
0: So do you have uh, maybe one or two great examples of, and I want to talk about design firms specifically, firms who have gotten really good at creating that balance in, in the workplace?
1: Gosh, you know, I don't know if I know of one particular design firm. I could probably speak to some clients that seem to seem to have captured it for their particular organization, you know, because it can kind of depend on that sort of organizational culture, I think Capital One does a fantastic job of that. I've I've met with their folks a few times and they've got, they're onto something there and and that seems to be working really well for them. And that would be just one example. And, And I do believe that, you know, there was a firm in Toronto that just did some work with Capital One along those lines. So if I could remember the name of the firm, I would offer it up. But anyway.
0: A design firm? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen that project, but I don't recall which firm it was.
1: I want to say his fellow panelist on the discussion panel, his his first name was Barry.
0: Oh, uh, IBI? Yeah. It's interesting because IBI has been going through a transformation where, from what I understand, they were more of a a very traditional corporate firm and they're trying to, working really hard at changing uh, their own culture to be more innovative. So that's interesting that they've been able to successfully do it on at least one project, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, and in a way, that kind of makes sense. I mean, if they're living through that that process of, of trying to be more innovative, they're going to have some sort of intuitive insights into what might work well. So, yeah, that, does,
0: that is interesting. What are, and staying on the idea of the workplace, what are some common misconceptions that you see about creativity and innovation done in workplace? Misconceptions or assumptions that are made that are... Wrong, and that maybe are not serving uh, the idea of innovation and, and creativity.
1: I think some of this comes with the the sort of need to innovate faster, but people seem to have this notion that that they can kind of streamline creativity you know, and, and innovation. And you can to a certain degree, right? The innovation pipeline, you can streamline that, the processes that are in place that, that can move you to market. But the the process of coming up with an, a new idea, it's it's difficult to streamline in the sense that it, when people think of that, they think of it efficiency. Because to a certain degree, you need to be inefficient in order to be creative. And so, it's it's kind of curing people of this notion that that if I want you know my organization to innovate faster, I have to push them harder to to they have to work harder. And I and I say to them, what you're what you're probably doing is you're probably um, you know sabotaging people's ability to to come up with new ideas. And so I would ask you to think about you know. Honoring some of the inefficiencies that you see, you know, throughout the workday and in, and in the workplace, and you know, like, I, like for example, like I was talking about daydreaming, right? You know, that that might look like an inefficiency, but you know, our brains do some really fascinating and fabulous work when we're more relaxed. And you know, socializing, you know, that that notion of those serendipitous interactions, socializing, is something that can be seen as inefficient. And and you know, if people are, are hanging out and enjoying a cup of coffee and, and laughing, you know, that that's not necessarily a bad thing. So. I think that would probably be the biggest misconception I think people have when they think about innovation is that they kind of get stuck on this notion of speed and efficiency. And there's a bit of a paradox that, that you, need to, you need to honor some of that inefficiency in order for people to kind of complete that full creative thinking cycle, you know, to, to, to come up with that light bulb moment. So yeah, that, that's probably the biggest misconception in terms of that. Another misconception I would think that a lot of people have is that there's this notion of Creatives, you know that there are people that are creative, <laughs> and then there are people that are not creative. And in the truest sense, we all have the capacity to create. Um, and I think there's there's something wonderful in that because if we all have the capacity to do it, and and, and it's actually a skill. It's not some sort of gift that was given to you by a fairy in the middle of the night that this is something that we can practice. We can get better at it, you know, so we can improve our creativity. And so there's there's some there's some really good things in that as well that people, I think, aren't really aware of. Too often I hear people saying, oh, I'm not creative. And I would but to differ. I think you are. I think we all are. It's the different ways in which we, we can be creative, you know, um, in a broad sense. You have more artistic creativity and you can have, all you know, scientific creativity um, and degrees. You know, people are, are more creative or less creative than other people. People, but we all have that capacity so we can all get better
0: at it. It sounds like all of this is almost like innovation creativity and organizational culture or, or personal culture all have a, a role in how innovation happens. And, and, and what I'm taking out of this conversation is that there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to the problem of innovation and trying to be more innovative. It seems like it has to be highly targeted and customized processes and work that has to be put in place for each organization that suits what that culture is about, which, which kind of flies in the face of the common misconceptions that we just talked about, which is there's like recipes for, for those things. And I think it's what we need to embrace in terms of creativity is that everybody's differently creative in different ways and with different outputs. And we need to be able to, to work with that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it, one of the things that I would, that I try to encourage folks to do is to, I mean, talk to people with different backgrounds and ideas. You can't make something out of nothing, right? And if you're feeling things are stagnant, right? Try something new, right? and Engage engage with people that you normally wouldn't engage with. Do things that you normally wouldn't do. Learn something new. And when you're working with people, engage in constructive conflict. I mean, that's kind of, if you've got people coming from two different perspectives or three different perspectives, right? There's, there's going to be some conflict in a way but that can be a good thing right they so can have some really good stuff come out of that yeah so it's and and it can be messy I, I think that's the other part that makes people uncomfortable is that it can be messy and it kind of needs to be messy
0: i think that's a perfect thought to conclude on is learn to embrace discomfort and conflict to a level not violent conflict but uh to confront ideas with other people. I think that's, uh, that's a perfect conclusion. Uh, Beck, I want to thank you very much for taking part in this interview. It was a fascinating conversation, and I'm hoping that we can continue the conversation in the future.
1: Absolutely. It's been my pleasure, and thank you for inviting me.
0: Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Follow us on social media at Revelator underscore TO, it's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore TO. Until next time, ciao!